Feminist psychology is the topic uh, for these comments. Uh, it's based on Mogadam's chapter 17 and page 165 in Benson. Near the beginning of his chapter, Mogadam talks about uh, participation of women in psychology. And the term exclusion is used because uh, early on in the history of psychology, very few women were uh, permitted to enter into the study of psychology and certainly not to the teaching of psychology. Much has changed, and I'll give you some idea of some of the people involved in that change in a moment. But I thought I'd start uh, by just mentioning some uh, statistics with respect to psychology at uh, York. First of all, uh, two-thirds of York's undergraduate students are female. In psychology, in the graduate program, 80% of the students are female. Uh, the faculty is 45% uh, uh, female in psychology. Just 20 years ago, the percentage was uh, between 20 and 25%, so there's been a rapid change uh, in the percentage of faculty members, but still not, uh, not half and not anywhere near equal to the proportion of women who are studying psychology. In earlier years, many people argued that uh, gender was unrelated to the study of psychology. And this comes from an idea that if psychologists are studying basic human processes like learning, memory, perception, then surely these are the same in both men and in women. But this doesn't mean that psychology was any less um, affected, uh, influenced by the stereotypes of women that exist in the culture. Within psychology, it's easy to point to a number of stereotypical uh, views of women. We can go back to the early history of psychology, and I'm going to uh, read you some quotations from Francis Galton. We've talked about several times. I've taken this and uh, some of the other material from uh, these comments from a book by Graham Richards, and I've given that uh, reference at the end of the, the outline. But uh, what I'm going to read you now is from Francis Galton, uh, writing in 1883. He says, I found as a rule that men have more delicate powers of discrimination than women, and business experience seems to confirm this view. The tuners of pianofortes are men, and so, I understand, are the tasters of tea and wine, the sorters of wool and the like. These latter occupations are well salaried, because it is of the first moment to the merchant that he should be rightly advised on the real value of what he is about to purchase or to sell. If the sensitivity of women were superior to that of men, the self-interest of merchants would lead to their being always employed. But, as the reverse is the case, the opposite supposition is likely to be the true one. Ladies rarely distinguish, distinguish the merits of wine at the dinner table, and though custom allows them to preside at the breakfast table, men think them on the whole to be far from successful makers of tea and coffee. Galton made a number of very important contributions to psychology, as we talked about, especially with respect to the study of intelligence. But uh, I think this comment makes clear that uh, he was uh, certainly subject to uh, stereotypical views. Another early psychologist, uh, the Italian Cesare Lombroso, wrote a book called The Female Offender. It was translated into English in 1895. I've given you a link uh, to uh, this book. Uh, the page I've put you to is the beginning of chapter 7. 
where he describes a number of uh, female criminals and gives pictures and, and indicates how these uh, pictures demonstrate the criminal characteristics of the women. He actually believed that you could look at these faces and you could see the criminal characteristics there. To see the actual pictures on the link, you'll have to scroll through uh, a couple of pages before you come to the pictures, but read some of the descriptions of the criminals along the way. I think you'll find them interesting as well. Here are a couple of quotations um, which were cited in the Richards book. Uh, so this is uh, Lombroso talking about crimes of passion. He says, often premeditation in the woman is longer than in the man. It is also colder and more cunning, so that the crime is executed with an ability and a gloating, which in the deed of pure passion are psychologically impossible. Nor does sincere penitence always follow the offense. On the contrary, there is often exultation, and rarely does the offender commit suicide. And here's a uh, description of a particular case, uh, which you can uh, listen to see what stereotypical views you see in it. He's, he writes, uh, M, the daughter of an eccentric, unpractical mother, received a high literary but incomplete education, crowned by a university degree, which only unfitted her for real life. At 23, she found herself an orphan, ruined by her family reverses. After various vain efforts, she accepted a post of teacher, but was dismissed on its being discovered she was a Protestant. Then, alone in the world, without means of existence, and haunted by the memory of more happy days, she began buying articles of jewelry in shops, where she obtained credit in virtue of the former position of her family. A series of such frauds finally brought her to prison, where she died before her trial, worn out by misery and shame. Lombroso's views on crime were very important and very influential all over the world. Another psychologist who was very influential, uh, Otto Weininger, uh, wrote in 1906. And uh, see what you think of this passage from uh, Weininger. Woman's thought is a sliding and gliding through subjects, a superficial tasting of things that a man who studies the depths would scarcely notice. It is an extravagant and dainty method of skimming, which has no grasp of accuracy. A woman's thought is superficial. In touch is the most highly developed of the female senses, the most notable characteristic of the woman which she can bring to a high state by her unaided efforts. Touch necessitates a limiting of interest to superficialities. When a woman understands a man, she is simply, so to speak, tasting what he has thought about her. Notice in this the scientific tone of what's being said. I mean, the preposterous stereotypes, but they're put out in a formal uh, fashion, the statements of truth. And Mogadam tells us how in the 1930s, Terman and Miles, Terman being uh, one of the most important people with respect to the development of the Stanford Binet intelligence test, that Terman and Miles put together a personality scale to measure masculinity and femininity. They considered this as a single dimension, masculinity on one end, femininity on the other. But the characteristics that they used to define masculinity and femininity were simply the collection of stereotypes that were prevalent uh, at the time. Uh, this was as late as the 1930s. I think 36 was the year Mogram tells us this was published. Now, more recently, 
uh, people have begun to speak about androgyny and they've talked about measuring masculinity and femininity uh, separately so that a person could have a score on their masculinity characteristics and a score on their femininity characteristics. One could be high on both, low on both, moderate on both, high on one, low on the other, and so forth. Uh, but it was uh, well into the history of psychology uh, before people came to this uh, this insight. Benson tells us through his cartoon on page 165, psychology still tends to present human behavior using heterosexual white males as the norm against which all else is compared. And under the uh, line, men is the norm, I've given you a link to a piece that I think can help you understand what it means to say that to treat men as the norm and woman as other. Um, I'll just read this uh, off. When men are defined as human and women as other, the consequences can be far-reaching. Psychologist Sandra Bem points to a telling example. Up through the 1970s, the Supreme Court ruled that insurance companies did not have to provide pregnancy benefits under the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. Notice that Equal Protection Clause. Because the exclusion did not involve, quote, discrimination based on gender as such. The court was able to reach such a decision because males had set the standard. All medical problems more prevalent in men, prostatectomies, circumcision, hemophilia, and the like, were fully covered by all the insurance companies, whereas medical problems exclusive to females were seen as additional or extra. Insurance companies were required to provide only the coverage that the standard human body would require. The standard human does not get pregnant. This is a prime example of how the social world, organized from a male perspective, routinely transforms biological and historical differences between men and women into male advantage and female disadvantage. There are many ways in which uh, this becomes manifest in psychology, even such a simple thing as choice of participants in a research. Uh, some, it was very common in psychology until just recently uh, for only men to be selected, often because uh, there were only men or very f few women available in the universities where much of the research was being done. And this wasn't seen as problematic in any way. Uh, a main point that I want to make here is that the feminist psychologists were reacting against the stereotypes in psychology that were being pulled in from the culture uh, more broadly. There are lots of examples that I could give of stereotypes in the culture, but instead I'm going to talk about uh, exceptions, people who were not so much uh, subject to these uh, stereotypes, and well before their time, uh, you might say, were leaders towards a different way of thinking. Mary Wollstonecraft, a hundred years ahead of her time, uh, just after the French Revolution, writes a vindication of the rights of woman. Uh, she writes at length about uh, women's rights and about women's education. Uh, she makes the point that women should not be measured uh, by men's standards. She talks about reason uh, being more important than tradition in our understanding of, uh, of each other. John Stuart Mill, writing in 1869, the on the subjection of women, uh, sees marriage as like slavery. 
he sees clearly that when others say something like it's natural for man uh, to dominate woman, that uh, the environmental conditions uh, can't be mistaken for what's natural. He proposes a number of benefits that would come from uh, seeing women in a more equal role in the society, not the least of which was that uh, we would no longer continue to waste the intellectual ability uh, of women, but if opportunities for better education, uh, equal opportunities were provided. And this is 25, 30 years before Lombroso wrote uh, those uh, comments, and uh, even longer before uh, Weininger wrote his authoritative view of women for uh, the psychology textbooks. Mogadam mentions uh, Havelock Ellis uh, on the negative side as an example of uh, some of these people who had more stereotypical views of women in the early history of psychology. Uh, but in fact, Richards, uh, from whom I've been quoting some of these uh, passages, uh, sees uh, Ellis quite differently. He says that uh, initially uh, Ellis wrote some fairly uh, stereotypical things, but uh, later on, uh, near the turn of the century, this is 1896, uh, here are some passages uh, from Ellis that show some insight. Uh, men have had their revenge on nature and on her protege, while women have been largely absorbed in that sphere of sexuality which is nature's, men have roamed the earth, sharpening their aptitudes and energies in perpetual conflict with nature. It has thus come about that the subjugation of nature by man has often practically involved the subjugation, physical and mental, of women by men. Women is a, this is White, uh, Ellis again, Women, it is true, remain nearer than men to the infantile state. But, on the other hand, men approach more nearly than women to the ape-like and senile state. So obviously his first comment is intended uh, sarcastically. He also says uh, in another spot, So long as maternity under certain conditions is practically counted as a criminal act, it cannot be said that the feminine element is, in life has yet been restored. Uh, to do honor. And this is the point that uh, John Stuart Mill was making earlier on. If you subject uh, women in these ways that are environmental and cultural, but are conceptualized as natural and biological, then you lose all of the possibilities uh, of half of the, of the society, not to mention the pain and suffering that's uh, inflicted upon that group. Many feminist uh, psychologists have um, criticized the psychoanalytic approaches of Freud and Jung. Uh, one of the positive aspects, though, of Freudian perspective was that Freud attributed uh, the differences between men and women to environmental circumstances, much as to biology, something that which was indeed progress. Uh, the environmental aspect you'll know from our earlier study of the Oedipus complex and the electric complex, uh, Freud saw the relationship between the young girl and her mother and her father as having a substantial influence on uh, the development of her characteristics. Jung, on the other hand, was more traditional in his uh, view, more stereotypical. He, for instance, uh, argued that women were by nature uh, more on the feeling and intuition uh, side of uh, his dichotomies, 
whereas men were more on the thinking and sensation uh, side. Uh, perhaps the psychoanalyst who had the most influence uh, in movement in a movement in the feminist direction was Karen Hornay. Uh, she was very adamant that it was social relationships rather than biology that uh, led to any differences that existed between men and women. Morganham doesn't mention her in this chapter, but he did uh, mention her briefly uh, earlier in the chapter on the self. Uh, you may recall uh, I talked in the commentaries about Harry Stack Sullivan and his emphasis on social interactions. And, uh, and Morganham uh, speaks about Karen Horney in the same uh, paragraph on page 214. Karen Horney also gave particular importance to the role of social relationships in the formation of the self. Uh, arguing that feminine masculine selves arise out of cultural processes. And that's the key idea, that it's cultural processes rather than biological uh, that account uh, for the differences. So this is uh, a key idea that many feminist psychologists uh, emphasizes the role of culture and therefore the idea that any differences that we do observe between men and women could be uh, changed if the society changed. I want to mention a few feminists who are not psychologists, but uh, were responsible for large changes within the society, within the culture generally, and consequently indirectly upon psychology itself. Uh, I've listed three here and given you links where you can read more about uh, each. Uh, Simone de Beauvoir uh, wrote a book called The Second Sex, and she's particularly known for this insight that within the culture, we tend to think of the man as the norm and the female as uh, the other. She too emphasizes the cultural aspects of uh, male and female. Uh, she wrote at one point, one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. Betty Friedan wrote, wrote a book called uh, Feminine Mystique. This is an interesting case. Uh, she grew up uh, in a very stereotypical fashion, uh, got married, uh, became a housewife in, a, in the typical 50s uh, style of Leave it to Beaver, uh, began raising children, and found herself deadly bored. Uh, she talked about the disquiet, uh, the unhappiness, the inability to lead a full and fulfilling life that came in the suburbs, in the standard stereotypical arrangements imagined in the middle-class norms of the day. Jermaine Greer uh, wrote a book called The Female Eunuch, where she talked about uh, frigidity, sexual frigidity. And uh, she advocated liberation uh, for women through uh, an individual personal defiance of the norms. Get out there and, and break the norms. Uh, she was not uh, particularly involved in political action, and because of that has been criticized by uh, some other uh, feminist, but had a tremendous influence on many women uh, who read uh, her work and took, uh, took her advice uh, to act more independently. Each of these women uh, sought to change the way that women were conceptualized, to change the status of women in society, uh, to change the behavior uh, of women in society. And this is one of the key elements that uh, Mogadam points to as characteristic of feminist psychology. His opening sentence, feminist psychology attempts to harness the power of psychology to improve the status of women. 
the final sentence of the first paragraph, feminist psychology is explicitly political and nourished by the feminist movement. And these three women that I've just uh, described, uh, a little bit about their work, are certainly examples of leaders within the feminist movement. Elaine Morgan is not a psychologist, and neither is she could be categorized as a leader of uh, the feminist movement on the order of Friedan and Greer and Simone de Beauvoir. But I've included her here because of some very interesting things about her and things that she says that are relevant uh, to the course. Elaine Morgan uh, is a Welsh uh, woman now in her 90s who had a very successful career as a uh, writer, uh, particularly a writer for the BBC uh, radio productions. In the 1960s, she read some material about uh, evolution, uh, what we would think of now as some of the beginnings of evolutionary psychology. And she was very disturbed by this material because she thought it was uh, very male-centered. Uh, she said that what the people were discussing when they talked about the evolution of human behavior was the evolution of the male hunter. For example, she said how is it that uh, humans evolved to, to not have hair? And the explanation given by these uh, people was that, well, the hunters were out uh, hunting, running along the savanna uh, in the Kalahari Desert all the time, chasing animals. Uh, it was too hot. And so it was survival value in, uh, in losing the hair. She says, yeah, well, but what about the women? The women staying back, looking after the children, if that's the way they saw uh, things working, why did they lose their hair? Now, it wasn't so much the specific theory in itself that uh, upset her as the fact that the consciousness of the people formulating the theories only included men. There was no consideration of how the female of the species might have been involved. This led her to read everything she could get her hands on about uh, evolution, and she's since that time written five books uh, on evolution. The one for which she's best known took up an idea that uh, human ancestors may have spent some time in a water environment as a part of their evolution, and that this accounts for a number of aspects of the evolution of the species. This idea has been generally dismissed uh, by biologists, but uh, she pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed uh, biologists to give some explanation for why they dismissed it, rather than just say, oh, it sounds stupid, and uh, in fact has had some success in getting some biologists to come uh, around to the possibility that there might actually be something to this idea. Well, she's done a TED Talk um, tape that I'll put on the website, not in the outline, but on the main page of the website, where you can... Uh, listen to her talk a bit about that particular thing. I want to read to you a bit from an interview that she did on a different topic, uh, and it closes with uh, some comments about uh, empathy, a characteristic that uh, Mogadam uh, associates, associates with, uh, with women. And she deals with the evolutionary origins of a number of emotions, uh, as have been described or discussed by Haidt. You can read the full interview if you click on uh, her name. This an excerpt uh, from it. Um, the interviewer begins, you are still crusading. Your new book is about how the study of human nature has been and continues to be subverted to political ends. Why have you called it Pinker's List? Morgan responds, 
In one of his earlier books, How the Mind Works, Steven Pinker, who works on language and cognition at Harvard University, wrote a list of human emotions that need explaining. Kindness, altruism, cooperation, and so on. He didn't include things like aggression, revenge, and hatred, which he regarded as Darwinian and deep-rooted. To Pinker, and those who share his view, the positive emotions are problematic and secondary. At best, they're self-deceiving. At worst, hypocritical. This is a tragic and depressing vision of human nature. It simply reflects today's conventional wisdom. But Pinker's latest book, The Blank Slate, goes further. It is overtly political. He seems to be arguing that the best hope for humanity lies in the magic hand of market forces. Do you see Pinker's view of human nature as a reflection of the zeitgeist? I do think that people have quite unconsciously started to accept this feeling that's in the air, that humans are a pretty rotten lot, full of aggression, revenge, stupidity, jealousy, and so on, restrained only by a veneer of enlightened self-interest. It's reinforced by the media's need to command attention, and that's most easily achieved by depicting violence and corruption. People being decent to each other, as most people are most of the time, can make boring viewing. So science and the media together are helping to create a climate of devaluing the way we look at other people and ourselves. Do you believe that Pinker's entire reductionist approach is unhelpful? All I'm saying is that there are other ways of looking at things. Nature and nurture are inseparable, intricately interdependent. But concentrating too much on the genetic component is debilitating. Okay, some people are dysfunctional. But if you want fewer of them in the future, either you can lock them up in ever-increasing numbers, or you can say, how much of it is due to their environment? How can we change the environment? so that the next generation will be a bit better. Can understanding human nature help us change for the better? Biologically, the instinct to behave badly towards one another and the instinct to behave well towards one another are pretty much in balance. What we have going for us is that we are able to think. We have foresight. We can think about the effects our actions may have on ourselves and on others. We are the only species that can do this. I believe we are thinking towards some purpose. I believe, with the philosopher Peter Singer, that we are increasingly able to empathize with more kinds of people. So these notions of empathy and uh, changing the uh, system, changing the circumstances, the conditions of life, are two strong characteristics of feminist uh, movement, feminist psychology, and Elaine Morgan shows them very clearly in her own work. On the other hand, it would be a mistake to say that there's uh, feminism is a single uh, thing. There are many varieties of feminism, both in the culture generally and even within psychology. Uh, what I'm going to do in the remainder of these comments is talk about some suggestions for psychology that come from a variety of different feminist approaches. Uh, the organization of uh, these comments comes in part from a book by Thomas Teo that I've referenced at the end of the outline, and particularly from the chapter that he has on feminist critiques of psychology. One characteristic that distinguishes between two categories of feminist psychologists 
is the extent to which they see science as problematic or not problematic. There is a group of feminist psychologists who believe that science, we just need to be more careful, that science hasn't been applied appropriately uh, with respect to gender uh, issues. And if we do apply science appropriately, we'll be able to uh, solve most of these problems. Other think, others think that science is part of the problem. So start with the idea that what we need is a more careful science of the sort that uh, we already have. Here, what's implied is that we need, uh, for example, closer attention to the data, that we have biases as psychologists going into the situation and we misread data because of those gender biases that we bring with us. There are other parts of the scientific process where our biases might influence us. And these include the design of the study and even the report uh, of the study. But for instance, with respect to the design of the study, one of the suggestions is that we need a more appropriate selection of participants. For one thing, we have to have more women uh, in, the, uh, in the research. And additionally, we need a, a broader range of phenomena uh, that we study. Uh, topics like child rearing, uh, sex roles, uh, need to be studied uh, along with all of the other processes that psychologists are interested in. And in these other processes, it makes sense uh, to study sex differences, but we have to do them in a formal scientific uh, fashion. And that includes studying the origins uh, of those sex differences. I put the word apparent uh, in the outline because sometimes the sex differences may only be apparent. That may be part of the bias and a strict attention to the data that might show that uh, there were no sex differences. In other cases, we might find some that we hadn't been expecting. So this leads to some of the questions that uh, Mogadam asks, um, questions about which differences uh, will we study? Will we look for similarities? Will we look for differences uh, that are superior for men, superior for women? Uh, will we look uh, for androgyny rather than for differences, the modification that uh, Mogadam discusses with respect to Terman and Miles masculinity, femininity scales, for example. I think the most important thing is that when we study sex differences, gender differences, we have to also study the mechanisms by which they're produced. We can't take for granted that they're biological, for instance, rather than constructed. I think some of the best examples of studying the construction of uh, gender differences uh, can take, uh, be taken from um, Vygotsky and the scaffolding idea. Now, Vygotsky wasn't studying uh, gender differences at all, but what he did study was the cultural transmission of ideas. He looked at how adults scaffold the work, uh, the activities, the ideas of children, the newcomers in the society, and bring them into the society through the daily interactions, uh, scaffolding interactions. Well, I think it's looking at those processes that will show us something about where gender differences arise in many cases. And the one example that I've given you uh, previously is the research of Robin Fivish, uh, where she looks at uh, language development in infants and the proto-conversations between infants and uh, their parents. Another related idea would be um, Haidt's mention of gossip, studies of gossip, 
what people say when they're gossiping in front of their children, particularly, communicates a great deal about what the expectations are for men, the expectations are for women, and what the penalties are for not meeting those expectations or norms. Of course, some uh, gender differences might be biologically produced, and the place where it's most common to look uh, in contemporary psychology is for brain differences. I've given you a link to some material about brain differences, and one of the points made there is that uh, contemporary research does find a number of differences in the size of different parts of uh, male and female brains, uh, for instance. But the article also makes the point that we don't understand hardly anything about how to interpret that or, or what difference it makes. Uh, the authors state clearly that no evidence has been found that any difference in the brains of male and female, for instance, are associated with any kind of intellectual abilities. Personally, sometimes I feel when I read these kinds of things that were back in the time of Gaul in the study of phrenology, where the idea that uh, the size of the brain made a bump in the head and that the bumps in the head in different places uh, led to more or less of a characteristic. But the authors are right. There are uh, differences in the brain, and it's yet to be determined what the meaning of those, uh, what interpretation to make of those. For instance, one of the ideas that... Uh, men and women differ with respect to hemispheric lateralization. Men are more likely to have uh, characteristics um, lateralized, that is controlled by one side of the brain or the other, with women it's more likely to have uh, these spread across uh, the two hemispheres. But uh, it's yet to be determined whether this difference makes any difference, has any significance. Uh, some people talk about right brain and left brain individuals, but at this point, uh, that's simply a popular psychology idea. We don't know of any particular uh, psychological characteristics that really uh, are associated with that distinction. The split brain studies described by uh, Haidt, on the other hand, we do know something about the distinction between functions taking place in the left and in the right. But the distinction I'm talking about here is the distinction between men and women with respect to lateralization. And I'm saying that I don't know of any uh, indication of any psychological function that's associated with being more or less lateralized. One idea that Mogadam does talk about with respect to difference between male and female brains is the idea of an extreme male brain. Mogadam doesn't tell us anything about what the actual biological differences might be between uh, the male brain and the female brain that account for it, but he says that the male brain is associated with more systemic kind of thinking, the female brain with more empathic uh, kinds of thinking. And that uh, if you take the extreme male brain, uh, that is one that's highly focused on systematic thinking and very little, uh, if any, ability with respect to empathy, then you get what uh, is known as autism. Now, this is a theory of autism that doesn't have uh, absolute support. It's a suggestion that's been made. And I've given you uh, links where you can read a bit more about both the idea and the criticisms that have been made of it. One of the criticisms would be, of course, that, uh, well, if we can't specify exactly what it is that's going on in the brain that accounts for these, um, that doesn't seem very satisfactory, but that can always be answered by, well, further research will show. One can also ask if it's really true that men are more systematic uh, in their thinking, that uh, women are more empathic uh, in their thinking. 
And even if they are, is it really a function of the brain? If we can't pin down places in the in the brain, uh, how do we know that those are not cultural, culturally determined uh, aspects? Another problem is if the hypothesis is stated were in were actually true, then you might expect to find a syndrome uh, that's sort of its opposite, that is the extreme female brain, in which you have somebody who's highly empathic to the point of uh, excess uh, and absolutely no ability to engage in systematic uh, or thinking about systematic uh, processes. And uh, nobody has identified such a syndrome. Nobody has described that kind of uh, problematic situation. So this illustrates some of the kind of debate that one can have. Are sex differences um, socially constructed? Are they biologically based? And how do we go, how do we examine uh, this sort of thing? Uh, one issue that comes up is whether we can even determine specific relationships between the biological sex of an individual and their psychological gender. On page 262, uh, Mogadam defines gender for us as the social role ascribed to people who fall in either the female or male sex category. In this context, Mogadam describes a famous case of a pair of twins, John and Joan. Um, Joan actually born as a boy, but uh, during the circumcision operation, um, a considerable portion of the penis was uh, cut, accidentally cut off. And the decision was made to remove the whole of the male uh, genitalia and, and to raise the child as a female rather than as a male. The idea was to treat uh, the boy now known as Joan uh, as a girl uh, throughout uh, his life. And as Mogadam suggests in his brief uh, description, for a time this appeared to actually work fairly well and demonstrate a great deal of plasticity in the gender side of things. That is, that the psychological gender of the child uh, wasn't necessarily determined by a physiological, biological um, basis. But as the child uh, grew into adulthood, it became more obvious that uh, things had not gone so well and gave more evidence that uh, the biological basis did make a considerable difference with respect to gender. Well, I've given you a link where you can read the whole story. Uh, it's quite an interesting story, but also it has a number of unusual complicated elements that make it difficult to use it as really a test case for uh, settling the issue of the relationship between biological sex and uh, psychological gender. Uh, in addition, we have the problem that uh, today people understand that even the issue of biological sex is not so simple as Mogadam's um, definition of gender makes it sound like we just have male and female. Today we're aware of uh, what's called intersexuality and that male and female is really uh, a set, a category, a set of categories that dichotomize a whole range of different uh, situations. Mogadam touches on this on page 262 when he says, even so the female-male categories are made more complicated by hermaphrodites, transvestites, transsexuals. But the article that uh, I've linked uh, you to here with the John and Joan case um, talks about how you've got external genitalia as one marker of uh, biological sex, but you also have a hormone 
uh, markers, and you have uh, genetic markers, as well as the, um, the functionality of um, the various or sex organs. And the various combination of these possibilities and others that are described in the article uh, lead to what's known as these intersexual uh, categories. So the question of how bio biology relates to psychology becomes much more complicated in this case, and particularly when we add in the interpretations, uh, the meanings that people have for all these uh, wide variety of biological and psychological categories. Well, each of these issues that I've been mentioning falls under the idea of feminist psychologists suggesting that a better science will allow us to investigate uh, these matters, understand them, and to improve the situation of women in the world. But another category of feminists uh, believe that science needs to change. We need a better science. In particular, uh, we need to think in terms of uh, different methods. And this largely moves along the line that I've been talking about throughout the course, about the difference between natural science approaches and human science approaches, or what Mogadam calls normative science approaches. Some feminist psychologists have gone so far as to say that the methodologies of causal science, natural science, have characteristics that we, at least stereotypically, uh, associate with uh, men. Natural science seeks to be objective, but it seeks this objectivity through a detachment from the material or person uh, being examined. There's a real attempt to control uh, the situation, and there's an attempt to break it down in this atomistic fashion. So these are all characteristics, and it's not being claimed that they're uh, necessarily masculine by nature, but certainly we associate them with masculinity and that um, the, the sciences have, like the men who have been the scientists, looked for objectivity, detachment, control, uh, and atomism in terms of the system. The argument is that, at least in psychology and in many other social sciences, we need something different. We need a more dynam dynamic kind of objectivity. That is, we need to be able to put uh, a situation in place and look at it within a particular context, but to remember that it's within a particular context, not separate ourselves from it completely. We need to be connected. Uh, recall the Cosgrove and Flynn study, in which the ideal was for Cosgrove and Flynn to really get involved with the uh, homeless women uh, in the shelter. So a contextualization, a holistic rather than atomistic approach. Uh, in general, these, this distinction is between a quantitative and a qualitative type of methodology. Well, today there are more qualitative studies. We've had some examples uh, in the course, like the Cosgrove and Flynn study. But this is only relatively recent in the history of psychology. And even today, the gold standard for psychology is quantitative research. And that's the reason you have to take a statistics course if you want to major in psychology, is because it's believed you need to get that kind of ability to distance yourself abstractly through measurement processes and uh, control the data through the statistical manipulations. So the causal science and this quantitative approach, normative science and a more qualitative approach that looks at interviews, case studies, 
getting involved with the subjects, trying to make improvements in their lives even, uh, being very aware of the context in which the work is being done and looking at the whole of the individual rather than uh, separating out a particular trait or characteristic uh, individually. Many people today, quite rightly, I think, object to this dualism between quantitative and qualitative and say, well, why can't we have uh, some of both in the situations where one or the other is uh, more appropriate to use that? And I think that's a good idea. But it's been a long time in getting to the point where people are willing uh, to even consider this with respect to qualitative methodology. Until quite recently, quantitative methodology was the only uh, way to proceed uh, in psychology uh, and have any status uh, within the discipline. And it's feminist psychologists and the feminist movement that we have to thank for the possibility of engaging in more qualitative types of research today. A third uh, sort of suggestion or category of suggestions that comes from feminist psychology is that uh, psychology ought to be conceptualized in a way that's more relevant uh, to the particular problems of women. And sometimes this is called a standpoint uh, theory or a standpoint perspective. Uh, the idea is let's do psychology from the position of a woman. What's it, what are the issues that arise in the daily lived experience of a woman? And let's be explicit about that, because to say what are the situations that arise in the daily life of a person, based on the past, that's likely to be interpreted as a man, a man's world. So that's one problem. But in addition, because of the different meanings and interpretations, the different situations of women, there are in fact likely to be differences between what it looks like to stand in one position, the female position, rather than the male position. Now, from this standpoint theory, there are often political goals, too, because the idea is, all right, if we stand in the place of, say, the uh, homeless mothers in the shelter that uh, Cosgrove and Flynn examined, not only what does that look like, but how can we change that to make it better? How can we reform the systemic features uh, to improve that position uh, for these women? And in this standpoint, uh, the feminist psychologist doesn't want to reproduce the male gaze. It's not a matter of watching the homeless woman as a commodity, something to be studied and described in a research article. The gaze should be from the point of view of the woman in order to gain a sense of agency. This political change that we want, the social change that we want, is for that woman to gain facility in the understanding and control of her life. There are a wide uh, variety of phenomena that could be studied uh, within this standpoint uh, frame. Uh, I'll give you examples of three psychologists and phenomena that they've studied. Carol Gilligan, uh, Mary Belinke, and Bernice Lott. Mogenham discusses Carol Gilligan's research on uh, moral development on page 272. In a section, he labels gender differences reflect female superiority. Here he's uh, basically saying that some feminist psychologists have said, yes, let's study gender differences. And in fact, when we do, we'll find that uh, they show females to be superior. He then goes on to say that uh, more recent research has shown that uh, Gilligan was wrong about uh, her ideas about moral development. 
Well, I think here that Morganham has seriously misrepresented uh, Gilligan's uh, claims. I think her primary claim was that Kohlberg's work didn't capture the experience of women. She felt, for example, that when given this uh, moral dilemma, what uh, Haidt might call a quandary uh, ethic, whether Heinz should steal the drug uh, from the druggist, Kohlberg's method of evaluating the responses that the uh, research participants gave emphasized a conflict of rights, the right of Heinz's wife to live or uh, the pharmacist's uh, right of uh, personal property. She called this uh, an ethic of rights or a rights ethic. But she felt that uh, women in this situation would often see it different. She called it a care ethic or a responsibility ethic, that what women would be more likely to see in this situation was a conflict of responsibilities, the responsibility of Heinz to his wife and the responsibility of Heinz to the pharmacist and to those uh, people who might be dependent upon the, the pharmacist uh, for their own well-being. She thought that men would be more likely to detach themselves from the situation and argue in terms of principles about rights. Women were more likely to embed themselves uh, in the situation of the people, particularly think of it in narrative uh, terms, not nearly so uh, abstract. Well, what subsequent research showed was that both men and women are capable to bring both an ethic of rights and an ethic of care and responsibility to this uh, dilemma. So in that sense, it's true that the research didn't bear out that there was a difference between males and females uh, that favored uh, the females. Nevertheless, I think it's important that Gilligan gives us a very good example of a situation where bringing women's experience to the situation led people to investigate more thoroughly and to see a whole dimension that wasn't uh, obvious in the original experiment, an experiment, by the way, that was con that was conducted with only male uh, participants. I've given you links to work by two other psychologists that I think are both really interesting and good examples of working from this uh, standpoint uh, perspective. Uh, Mary Belinke has been involved in research uh, and women in a number of different situations. Uh, the particular book that uh, I've linked to here, it's a book called A Tradition That Has No Name. This is a set of studies where she looks at women who've been in positions of uh, care and responsibility, looking after others. And that's the tradition that uh, she refers to as having no name. Uh, the idea that women are often in this position of taking care of, taking responsibility for relationships among both men and women in, uh, in larger groups. She talks about the kind of con kinds of conflicts that arise in this uh, conflicts of responsibility, conflicts of care. She talks about the role of emotion in these situations, uh, the value of nurturing uh, that takes place in these situations but refuses to dichotomize between emotion and thinking, uh, for instance, seeing that uh, it's possible to be both uh, engaged with, involved with, supportive of somebody, and to think critically uh, at the same time. 
Her work provides not only a good example of the standpoint perspective, but of qualitative research, not, not so atomistic, not so individualistic, not so quantitative as uh, the traditional psychology, but yet yielding uh, really valuable, interesting insights. The third link here to a book, uh, most recent book of Bernice Lott, Psychology and Economic Injustice. Here is there's some relationship again to the Cosgrove and Flynn, looking at the intersection between systemic factors uh, in the society broadly uh, related to poverty and the individual uh, uh, factors of the people caught up uh, within those uh, unjust systems. Also, like Cosgrove and Flynn, a strong emphasis on social change, trying to actually do something on the basis of the studies to change the uh, the systemic features, not to take the simple psychological, traditional psychological approach of trying to help people feel better about or cope with their situation, but rather to actually change the situation. Lott has also written uh, very recently a book on multiculturalism uh, identity, and uh, one that she's well known for uh, a few years back called Women's Lives, uh, Themes and Variations in Gender Learning a book that looks closely at the cultural influences uh, in the social construction of gender. One area that the feminist uh, work has led me to, and particularly the Belenke uh, material, is the uh, area of community psychology. I think uh, this area has real potential to undermine some of the individualism that's I've talked about at several points as being problematic within contemporary psychology, and that uh, in future editions of this course, uh, I intend to try to work in some reading that will deal with that. Uh, at this point, though, I've just given you a link to a brief description of uh, what's involved with community psychology, an area that uh, Belenke and uh, Cosgrove and Flynn, uh, too, could easily fit into.